Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. I don't know how many of you saw it last Sunday evening, but it was the premiere of a brand new TV program called Oprah's Big Give. Anybody see that? Yeah, there are a few of you. Over 16 million viewers tuned in. It was kind of like the, the biggest... Um, premiere of a new program in a long, long time. And uh, someone, one of the TV critics I was reading this week called it, it's kind of the American idol of charity volunteers. Because it, it's really a contest on like who can be the best giver. And if you didn't see it, this is what it started with. Last week, they started with 10 contestants. And uh, each contestant was given an envelope, a picture of a person with their address on it, and $25,000. And their task was to go out and change the life of a complete stranger. And they paired them up in groups of two. And uh, they were supposed to go and interview this person, find out their story, what their need was, and find out a way to make a difference in their life. And so they kind of all got together. They paired them off in their teams of two. And they sent them out. And out they went. They had five days to complete the challenge. And uh, I just, there was one team, actually, that spent the whole first day. Of course, this was down in Los Angeles, so it does make a little bit of sense. But there was one team that spent the whole first day, seven hours lost. They couldn't find the place they were supposed to go to. Now, I just wanted to go on, I want you to know, on the record, for the record, it was not two men. It was two women. And they didn't stop to ask for directions. So I just want to make it really, really, really clear about that, okay? Eventually, they found the people, and, uh, and each person had a different story, what their need was, what their tragedy was, and, and it was really something. And, and I got to say, on the positive side, um, I think it's a kind of a cool idea, because on the positive side, it raises the awareness that there are hurting people all around us that we may not think on the outside, but they are. And, and I, I liked it because... The challenge was to not just go out and give the $25,000 directly to the people, but to use that as seed money to raise more money, to really make a difference for somebody over the long haul. So it kind of was, you know, be creative with all of this. Um, and, and the other thing I love about the program is it just encourages a spirit of generosity and giving. And I think that's always a good thing. The downside of the deal was that it really didn't cost the contestants anything. I mean, they had to put a little bit of time and effort into the thing, but really it was Oprah's money. Well, supposedly, Oprah's money they were giving away. Now, the thing about the program that they announced was that there was a surprise ending to the end of this program. And, and the surprise, which has kind of, I guess, gotten out now, is that the winner, the best giver, is going to get $1 million. Now, to me, that's the real test. <laughs> see, it's real easy to be generous with somebody else's money, but I want to see when the winner gets their $1 million if it comes out of your own pocket, how generous are you? Jesus said that God so loved the world that he gave. Gave his one and only son. In fact, that sentence that Jesus said is, is in essence the gospel of John in one sentence. And it's what we're looking at over the next couple of weeks. Started last week. And, and for those of you who didn't have the benefit of Sunday school, if you didn't grow up learning memory verses, we're going to do this all together this month. So we're going to do it again this morning. I'd like you to put up on the screen. It's in your outline there at the top there. I would like us to read together this sentence of Jesus. The, the, it is the descriptive sentence. It is the, the, the main sentence in the whole book of John. 
Read it together with me, would you? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That sums up the whole gospel. One sentence. In fact, the rest of John's gospel, you could say, is an expounding on that one sentence. And that's what we've been looking at. What does it mean? What does it mean that God so loved the world? What does it mean that he gave his one and only son? In fact, that's what we're going to look at this morning. What does it mean that God gave? What does it mean to you and to me? The practical reality. What does that sentence mean? There's an account Later on in the Gospel of John, it's in John chapter 8. If you want to turn there with me, if you want to use one of the bulletins or one of the uh, Bibles that are on the seats next to you, if you didn't bring one this morning, it's on page 1059. John chapter 8. It's another account in the life of Jesus, beginning in verse 2. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. And when he kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who, began, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now, leave your life of sin. I love that story because it is a picture of what it means that God gave us His one and only Son. It's what we're going to look at this morning. What does that mean? What does that mean for you and me? It means because God gave His one and only Son, we've also been given now the freedom to come clean. We've been given the freedom to come clean. About 15, 16 years ago, a book came out. The title of the book was The Day America Told the Truth. Uh, it was written by James Patterson and a man named Peter Kim. And what they did was they surveyed people. And they asked them really important questions about really important things in life. You know, the real, real story. And uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the results was that according to the responses that they got, 91% of Americans said they lie on a regular basis. 91% owned up, came clean. They said they lie on a regular basis, and they lie most often to their friends and their family. <laughs> and one of the things that they did, which was really interesting to me, is when they did this survey, they used what they call the cathartic method. And what that simply means is it was a chance for people to unburden themselves. And the way that they did that is they assured everyone who answered the responsibility complete anonymity and complete and absolute total privacy. In other words, they gave them the freedom to come clean. You didn't have to worry about any repercussions. Nobody else was going to see your answers. In fact, the very last question... The very last question on the whole survey was, have you lied at any time while taking this test? (laughs) They just wanted to cover all the bases. 
Psychologists tell us that most people, a vast majority of people, live with an underlying fear that they will be found out. That they will be found out for who they really are. That most of us live with that. It's an underlying fear. It just sits below the surface. But every one of us has this fear that somewhere, somewhere along the way, somebody's going to find out who I really am. And it's kind of this feeling that if you knew the real me, you wouldn't love me. You wouldn't like me. I don't really belong here. I don't deserve your friendship. A few years ago, my wife and I took a vacation. And uh, I did my famous going online, finding the cheapest fare kind of a thing. And I actually got some really nice tickets, very cheap tickets, and found out that the airline that we were flying on, I actually knew somebody who works for that airline. You know, so I called him up and I said, you know, what should I expect? Because I'd never flown this airline before, blah, 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 blah. And he said, well, let me see what I can do. Called me back a little while later and he says, when you go to check in, go to the first class window. And he had shifted our tickets and booked us first class tickets on the way out. And it was like, whoa, I've never, I've never flown first class before. And, and so we went and we checked in. But in the back of my mind, I was really feeling like I'm going to get up to the window and they're going to say, there must be some mistake here, Mr. Jensen. <laughs> but they didn't do that. We actually gave us boarding passes into first class. And they let us get on the plane in first class. And in first class, they let you get on first. And before anybody else gets on, they start meal service. They start like, they take care of you from the minute you get on the plane. And it was a wonderful flight. You know, we sat and we watched all these peons come and have to walk through first class. You know. <laughs> the little people. But in the back of my mind, I still had this long, this, this dread that somewhere along the line, somebody was going to find out we didn't belong here. And stick us in the back of the plane just as punishment, you know. But all of us live to some degree with that feeling that if you really knew who I am, you wouldn't like me. You wouldn't love me. In this story, this woman comes clean, not by her own decision. She is brought there by the Pharisees. And they bring her to Jesus and say to, her, say to him, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, it's really important here to note, these guys were not concerned with justice. They were not concerned with righteousness. We know that because if you go back and you read in Leviticus, what the law really says is not that the woman should be stoned, but that both the man and the woman should be stoned. Where's the man? If they're really concerned with justice, where's the man? This thing reeks of a setup. And in fact, John goes on and explains, that's the reason they came, in order to trap Jesus. They wanted to pit him against what he was teaching because he had been teaching grace. He had been teaching forgiveness. He had been teaching God's love. And they wanted to catch him in, an act, in a place where he would be stuck between God's justice and God's love and see, what are you going to do now? Because they have in their mind that those are two different things. That God's justice is opposed to God's love and God's love is opposed to God's justice. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to pit those two characteristics of God against each other. That's the real thing that's going on here. And though it was not their intent... 
Jesus was the perfect person to bring this woman to. Because you see, to come clean is risky stuff. To come clean makes you vulnerable. To come clean is to owe up of all the sin and the stuff that junks up your life. And that takes a great deal of trust. It takes a great deal of a sense of safety to be able to do something like that. Now, it wasn't her choice, but they brought her to the perfect place. And for a long time, Jesus does nothing, says nothing. In fact, all that he does is stoops down and writes in the sand. In fact, he does it for an extended period of time because they keep asking him, come on, when are you going to answer us? What are you going to do? What's the answer? What's the, you know, what? He just keeps writing in the sand. And there, you read the commentaries, and there's a lot of speculation about what it was that Jesus was writing in the sand. Some speculate that he was writing down all of the sins of all the people that had brought him, this woman to him. Some speculate that he was maybe reenacting the finger of God when God wrote in the stone tablets the Ten Commandments. The truth is we don't know what he wrote. And I don't think that's the point. I think the point is this. That when he stops to write in the sand, he is slowing down this rush to judgment and this rush to condemn. I think something else that he's doing is he's making them stop and realize what they're doing. This is not a theological exercise. This is a real person. This is a life. This is a human being that you're so ready to throw away. And I think just the pause there makes everybody stop and think for a moment about what's really going on here. And certainly by stopping and writing in the sand, he's got everybody's attention. They want to hear what his answer is going to be. And he says to them, let any one of you who is without sin Be the first to throw the stone at her. Here's the irony of the story. He gives each and every one of those people standing in front of him the chance to come clean. I I think that's amazing. He is giving every one of them the chance to come clean. And it says in verse 9 that at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. The older ones that had enough life experience, they knew. They knew the truth about themselves. And as they began to walk away, so did everybody else. See, the good news is Jesus gave them a place and a chance to come clean. The bad side of it was they didn't stick around to hear the answer. They were overcome by their own guilt and their own shame that they couldn't hang around to hear what the answer was. And there was an answer. There was an answer. Jesus was giving every one of them the chance to come clean. And that's what he does with each and every one of us. That's what Jesus does. Because God gave us his one and only son, we have the chance to come clean and not with fear and not with shame. Hebrews 4.16, we looked at this verse last week. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
Oh, these other guys came clean, all right. But they didn't stick around to find grace and find mercy. See, not only does Jesus give us the chance to come clean, but with that, we're also given a declaration, a pronouncement, forgiven, not guilty. You see, it is God's nature to love. It is God's nature to forgive. Grace is not God's plan B. And you need to hear that because I hear a lot of people say things like, well, you know, there's such a difference between God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. God in the Old Testament, it's all about law. It's all about sacrifice. It's all about vengeance. And, and then you get to the New Testament, it's all about love and mercy and grace as if Jesus was some kind of God light. Something different than the God of the Old Testament. And that simply is not the case. When Jesus said God gave his one and only son, King James Version, only begotten son, he was saying the same thing that the writer to, uh, to Hebrews wrote in John 1.3. The son is the exact likeness of God's being. Jesus was not acting on his own. Jesus was not different than God the Father. And I think some of us think that they're two different entities, that they work independently. They're not the same. And it's kind of like, you know, when you were a kid, you know, you used to go ask mom because you knew mom would probably be given, but, you know, dad, he would never do that. And it's kind of like we got this picture of God, the Father, and God, Jesus Christ, as if they're two different beings. And we'll, we'll go to Jesus because he's a little easier on us. You need to understand, and if you read the Old Testament clearly, you begin to understand God is a God of grace from beginning to end. Forgiveness and grace is not plan B. It's not because things didn't work out the other way. God had it in mind from the very beginning. In fact, Revelation, the last book in the Bible, tells us he was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. It was always part of God's plan to come to us in this way. And so Jesus says, you who are without sin, cast the first stone and one by one they leave the accusers leave the crowd that's gathered around they all begin to leave and it's only Jesus verse 9 says only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there now that's an important point because every time God deals with us with our sin it's always one on one every chance we have to come clean it's always just him and me (laughs) Him and you. Only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, she says. And then the greatest words ever spoken, verse 11. Then neither do I condemn you. It's like the gavel comes down at the end of the court session. And the declaration is, Not guilty. Not guilty. Now understand, she was guilty. (laughs) She was caught in the very act. And Jesus declares her not guilty. Now some of your Bibles might have a little asterisk or a footnote at the end of this passage or at the beginning of this passage. Some might have a little commentary in the margin that says something along the lines that some manuscripts do not include this passage in the gospel. And if you don't know much about how, the, how we got the Bible, we don't have the original manuscripts. Well, we have our copies and copies and copies, m- remarkably consistent over thousands of years. 
But some manuscripts that we have don't include this passage. Other manuscripts that we have have this passage, but don't put it here. They kind of stick it on at the end of the gospel. And the reason, I believe, is this. Because this comes across as God being too easy on adultery. God being too easy on sin. And I think some of those translators and some of those handwriters and some of those who wrote the manuscripts just had such a hard time with it, they felt like this can't be a part of what Jesus would do. And so some took editorial license and chose not to even include it. Others kind of stuck it on at the back because they weren't sure what to do with it. But over the centuries, this passage has survived and has been accepted as a part of our gospel of John. Because you can't do away with God's grace. As hard as it makes it for you to understand and comprehend, how can Jesus declare someone who was caught in the act, who was dead, certain, guilty, how can he turn around and say, not guilty? How can a just God do that? He can do it because six months later, he paid the penalty. Yeah, the law said, law made it clear. Adultery was a capital offense for both the man and the woman. Jesus, six months later, on a cross, gave his life. He paid the penalty. See, there is always a risk in preaching grace because it can be easily understood. And in this passage, when he says, neither do I condemn you, please understand, he is not saying, see, it's okay. Everybody else is doing it. That was not the point of his lack of condemning her. That was not what he was saying. Well, everybody does it, so, oh, well, we'll just kind of, we'll brush it under the rug. We won't tell dad about this. Now, see, the only one who was qualified to judge chooses not to judge. Hebrews tells us, we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He was the only one qualified. He was the only one qualified to pronounce judgment, but he didn't. Instead, he paid the penalty for her. 2 Corinthians tells us, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And that's what he was doing. Anybody here know the term ambergris? Anybody heard of ambergris? Want to know what it is? It is a very costly item. It is very, very, very expensive. It is the base for most perfumes. In fact, it is so costly that scientists have had to come up with a, a synthetic version of ambergris. It is dearly precious. It is hard stuff to get a hold of. You know what it really is? It's whale vomit. It is. It is. It is rancid. It is putrid. It is stinky. It's the stuff that even whales can't keep in their bellies. And yet, over time, with the right mix of chemicals, it becomes some of the most expensive fragrances that are sold in this world. The next time you buy Diorescence, you are buying whale vomit. You husbands, there's your excuse. 
Well, I was going to buy you perfume, but I just couldn't think you'd want to have whale vomit all over you. That's what it is. Scripture tells us God's reaction to sin is to vomit it. It is so contrary to his nature and his character, he can't stomach it. Throughout the Old Testament, that's what it says. He vomits at it. Rick James, in his book, Jesus Without Religion, writes about this. To say that God is pure and holy is to state the obvious, but the Bible uses a far less expected word to describe the reaction when God's purity is brought into contrast with sin and evil. That word is vomit. God's innate reaction to evil flowing from his own purity is to vomit it, destroy it, purge it. Now, this might not be a problem if you and I weren't riddled with the toxin, but we are. God truly does love us, and he created us for the very purpose of loving us. God is also pure and holy, and therefore sin presents a major obstacle in our relationship with him. I suppose God could just forget about our sin, but I don't think he can simply lop off attributes or qualities of himself, including his sin repels holiness. God, while possessing all the attributes of love, justice, purity, and holiness, is never in conflict with himself, and everything he does is consistent with all that he is. It's in Christ's death that God is able to simultaneously love, forgive, and destroy evil and sin. That's what Jesus did. He took that which repulses him at his character. He took that which is a part of every one of our lives because every one of us, if we were standing there, would have to drop our stones. But he doesn't sweep it under the rug and he doesn't pretend it never happened and he doesn't excuse it because everybody else is doing it. He says, no, paying the price. And he takes that which is vomit. And he mixes it with his mercy and his grace and his sacrificial love. And it becomes the most beautiful smell you could ever have. That's what it means that he gave his one and only son. And maybe the greatest news of all of it is because he gave his one and only son, we're now given the chance to really change. To really change. Because it's not just about forgiving our past. It's about a new life. Starting here, starting now. Jesus had a few final words for this woman before she left. He said to her, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. It's been said God loves you just the way that you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. And understand when he says that to her, these aren't words of condemnation. These aren't words of challenge. What he is doing, I believe, is giving her a vision for a new life. He's saying to her, you don't have to keep living this way anymore. Whatever it is, whatever love you're looking for, whatever it is that has caused you in this kind of behavior, whatever it is that you are striving for, whatever it is that you are missing, whatever it is that brings about this kind of behavior in your life, you don't have to live that way anymore. There is a solution. There is a new life that is available to you. Go. Live this new life. Leave that old life of sin. Go and live a new life. Dallas Willard writes that real transformation, spiritual transformation, happens in a combination of three things. Vision, intention, and means or method. 
We have to have a vision of what a new life could be. We have to believe that God has a real life for us, a new life for us, something different than what we're living now, and it is better. It is far better than what we are living now. We have to get a vision of that. And then we need to intentionally make a choice about it. And then we need to take on a means by which we will live this new life. A method by which we will take on this new life and live behind the old one. And Jesus provides all three. Real change is possible in only one way. That we would follow Jesus. A little bit later, Jesus said, same chapter, if you remain faithful to my teachings, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Only God can transform a life. But you and I have to make a decision about that on a daily basis. You and I must make the choice to follow. He says the truth will set you free. But Paul wrote in Galatians, God called you to be free, but don't use your freedom as an excuse to do what pleases your sinful self. If you think grace is just go ahead, do what you want to do, because God's going to forgive you anyway, so it doesn't matter. You've missed the point. Because the point is that you would live a new life that you would have a new way of doing life. Because God gave his one and only, we actually have a choice in the matter. Colossians 3 says, see things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your life. And so the rest of my life becomes this ongoing process of coming clean and owning up and hearing his words of forgiveness and then moving forward in a new life with a new vision for what I can be. 18 years ago now, just about 18 years ago, we had a dream for this church that this church would be a place where people could discover and begin to live this life of grace. It has been the driving force of this church since its inception. It's the only message we have, folks. It's the only message we have. And it's my dream and my prayer for this church that we would always be a safe place for people to come clean. That we would always be a place, always be a place where people could hear the words, you're not condemned. You're forgiven. And that we would always be a place that would give people the chance to really change. I never get tired of preaching grace. It's the greatest news that's ever been sent. It's the greatest gift that's ever been given. I've staked my life on it. (laughs) And I don't want anybody to miss out on it. Would you bow your heads with me? This morning, I want to give you a chance to come clean. The only real answer for the problem of sin is God's grace. Jesus already paid the penalty. It's safe here. But you've got to make a decision about it. Maybe for you it's the very first time of coming clean and owning up. Maybe... Maybe you did this years ago, 
but there's still a hidden secret struggle that you battle almost on a daily basis it might be an addiction or compulsive behavior we have a recovery group that meets here on Monday nights to help you break that grip of sin in your life what I want you to do this morning is hear Jesus' words to you neither do I condemn you neither do I condemn you go and leave your life of sin you are forgiven you're not guilty trust his grace trust in his grace take up the new life he has for you decide today to follow him and if your life is filled with judgment and condemnation of the people around you then maybe what your prayer is this morning is Lord give me a new heart give me a heart that loves like you love forgives like you forgive frees and liberates people like you do decide today to follow him not just today but tomorrow and next week for the rest of your life let him transform your life let's pray together Lord you know the secret darkness of my life stuff I don't want anybody else to see the stuff I have difficulty even admitting to myself much less to you it's the stuff that junks up my life hinders my relationships causes pain in other people I got no excuse for it. I'm guilty. But I thank you that you paid a price for me. I thank you for your words. Neither do I condemn you. I thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, make it mine today. And let me live closely following you from this day forward. That is our prayer, Lord, each and every one of us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.